today I'm going to have you um, turn in your Bibles to begin with to John chapter 19, but we'll be uh, looking at Acts chapter 2 and looking at the certainty of the resurrection, the certainty of the resurrection. If you joined us this past week for the Passion Week focuses, you know, we started on Sunday with the uh, triumphal entry, and you might remember I, I said that's the messianic presentation of, of Jesus, that as he rode in, uh, he presented himself as Messiah, and the people recognized him as such. Then we looked into Monday and Tuesday as the messianic proclamation that all the acts of Jesus and uh, the things that he said, he was proclaiming himself to be Messiah. He, he cleansed the temple. He took over the Temple Mount for two days and, uh, and rebuked the religious uh, leaders. Um, and Tuesday night uh, ended with the leaders really confused as, as to what to, to do. They met together and said, we're going to have to take this man in trickery uh, to kill him because we just can't take him. Uh, with the multitudes because he's just too popular. If you remember, they just determined that they would have to wait till after uh, the Passover was finished. Yet we all know the story. He is, ends up being crucified on Friday. So how'd that happen? It was Judas. Judas comes in and says, well, I can give him to you. I know where he's going to be uh, without the multitude. Um, we're going to be having uh, Passover on our own. And so Thursday is, is, is what we looked at there. That Thursday, Jesus has the, the Last Supper, celebrates the Passover with his disciples and excuses Judas to go do what he's going to do. But then he leaves. They all go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the reason is Jesus just wants more time with his disciples. He has much to teach them, much to prepare them for. And Judas knows that they often go to the Garden and Judas finds them there and, and Jesus is arrested. And I told you that the trials that take place, there are six phases of two trials, a religious and a civil trial, uh, take place really through the uh, evening into the early mornings of Friday so that Jesus is tried and condemned and hanging on the cross by nine in the morning. And I'm going to pick up on John chapter 19 today just to tell you kind of what took place from that point, uh, uh, point on. This is right after uh, Jesus has cried out, it is finished, and he has bowed his head and died. It says this, therefore, because it was the preparation day, this is verse 31 of chapter 19, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. So here you have just an account from John. He's the one that's given the testimony that Jesus had, in fact, uh, died before that point. But here, here's what I want you to catch there, that it's a preparation day. That means it's a Passover. And they're preparing also for the Sabbath. It says that Sabbath was a high day. And all that means is that it's a doubly important day because it happens during the Passover. So they always celebrate the Sabbath, but this particular one happens at the Passover. So you have preparation for the Passover and preparation for the Sabbath, and they need to make sure that the, the bodies are taken down off the cross by sundown because the Jews really believed that the land would be defiled if uh, there were dead bodies there and perhaps touched the land or anybody had to touch them, they'd be unclean in preparation for the Sabbath. And so that's what I want you to, to point out there. I'm going to take you now to Matthew's account. Um, oh, actually, no, stay in John, stay in John. I do want to read who takes the body in verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby. So again, John highlights the fact that Jesus was buried close by because of the preparation day. They wanted to get him buried before sundown. Now take you to Matthew chapter 27. This is really just by way of introduction and kind of catching us up to where we are with the resurrection. In Matthew chapter 27, looking at the end of that chapter, uh, verse 62. 
What I'm going to show you here is the one day we haven't talked about, and that is Saturday. What happens on Saturday? Is that, does anything happen at all? Remember, we had a silent day this week. Wednesday was sort of the silent day. While nothing is recorded in Scripture of what took place that day, we do know that a lot was taking place. Jesus was preparing uh, for the Passover and preparing to make arrangements to have the room. Judas was be- uh, preparing to betray him, and he was going to the Sanhedrin. They were getting a, a cohort of soldiers, 600 soldiers together. So there's a lot happening, but nothing is actually specifically described. Well, Saturday is described to us. And here's what happens on Saturday in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation. Okay, that's what I want you to see. So it's Saturday. The chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, Jesus has ended here um, in a tomb and a tomb that has been made secure and that is really where the world wants to keep Jesus securely tucked away sealed uh, in a tomb the account of the resurrection just simply cannot be something that could have happened they won't even really consider the possibility because people don't rise from the dead and sadly This is actually uh, even creeping into churches. Yes, churches. People who believe in Jesus Christ don't believe in the resurrection. Um, This comes from a poll from the BBC two years ago. A quarter of people who describe themselves as Christians in Great Britain do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And Reverend Dr. Lorraine Kavanaugh is the acting secretary for Modern Church which promotes liberal Christian theology. And this is what she says. I think people answering that survey are being asked to believe in the way they might have been asked to believe when they were in Sunday school. You're talking about adults here. And an adult faith requires that it be constantly questioned, constantly reinterpreted, which incidentally is very much what modern church is actually about. Science but also intellectual and philosophical thought that has progressed. It has a trickle-down effect on just about everybody's lives. So to ask an adult to believe in the resurrection the way they did when they were at Sunday school simply won't do, and that's true of much of the key elements of the Christian faith. This is a reverend of a church, modern church. It's really... The resurrection is really something you're only supposed to believe when you're young, which I'm assuming is what is meant by when you're at Sunday school. And so the implication then is that when we we share the gospel to adults, uh, we should just leave out the resurrection because that's just a story only a child would believe. Well, I want to take us to Acts chapter 2. I want to see if that's really the same tactic, the same approach the disciples of Jesus used? Were they scared of using the account of the resurrection because adults would just think that's just too impossible? Is it meant to be that we reinterpret our beliefs? We're constantly to question our faith? Is that the teaching of the church? Is that the teaching of Jesus? Did Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, gather his disciples together and say, okay, now, you know, I'm not going to be with you anymore. So as you go forward, I guess just keep asking a lot of questions. You're going to have a lot of doubt. Or did he enforce their belief and cement it? In Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. It's the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest. And Pentecost just means 50th because it's 50 days after the Passover. After the Passover that Jesus was just crucified at. So you're talking about a month and a half, right? Just 50 days after that time. And so if Passover is March, April time, you're talking about May, June time frame. And it's one of three annual feasts that 
that the nation had to come to. So just like the, the Passover feast where all the nation descended to Jerusalem, that's the same with Pentecost. You have people from all over Israel and beyond coming into Jerusalem. And I want to read you, to you Acts chapter 2, just the first four verses. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house they were sitting, uh, where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the disciples, obviously, are at the required feasts in Jerusalem, and mostly because Jesus had commanded them to be there as well. I mean, if he had commanded them to not be there for some reason, they surely would not have been, but it was expected of them, and Jesus included that command to them. And in Acts chapter 1, just kind of make a quick page left-hand turn, in verse 4, and being assembled together with them, this is Jesus, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is giving them very specific instructions. Remain in Jerusalem because... Remember the promise of the, whole, the Father that I talked to you about in the upper room on Thursday? Yeah, that's going to come to you not many days from now. I need you to remain in Jerusalem until that has happened. And so at Pentecost, when all of these people from all over the, the nation and beyond are in Jerusalem, it happens. The promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon them. And, and, and this is interesting because... Because at Pentecost, you have an offering of first fruits that you would make, um, uh, to, um, you would offer at the temple, right? It's your, your first fruits of your, your harvest. Well, that was required of them according to Le Leviticus 23.20. They had to offer that offering at this feast. But the Holy Spirit came and, and was given to the, the disciples, sort of as a first fruits of the believer's inheritance. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. He says that the Spirit was given to us as a guarantee. That's what the first fruits is, right? It's, it's, a, it's the beginning of what's guaranteed to come, right? This is just a small portion of, of what's to come. And so they're filled with the Holy Spirit at, at this feast of first fruits. What happens? Look at verse 5 of Acts chapter 2. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred... The multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So they are speaking tongues, which here is different languages. Um, that's, that's reacted here, or, or um, given to us in verse 9. They're speaking the languages of Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. He's just describing there's people from all over. And we're, we're hearing them speak in our own language. How, how, can this, how can this be? And their reaction is that they're just marveling at this. In verse 12, it says they, may, they were amazed and they were perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. So some are just saying, what is going on here? And some are saying, well, they're just, uh, they're just drunk. So Peter and the disciples are in an interesting uh, position here. Peter's got to explain to them what's happening. And here's what Peter does in verse 22. Skip ahead to verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So here, um, uh, Peter is, is talking about Jesus and the signs that he did. And he says, many of you, many of you can attest to these signs. He did them in your midst. In fact, What's one of the greatest signs that he's referring to, probably? The, 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 the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Because if you remember at the Passover feast, everyone was there because they were required to be there. But what, was, what were they all buzzing about? 
is Jesus going to be here? Because he raised Lazarus from the dead and is Lazarus going to be here, right? They were all abuzz about that miracle. They all knew about it. So he is here saying, listen, much the same crowd is here. Uh, Jesus was in your midst. He did some amazing signs and you, you know about them. But you also know that you crucified him. You, you killed him. And as he describes uh, this, look what he says in verse four, uh, 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. What was impossible? What was the impossible part, according to Peter? He says it was impossible that the grave could uh, keep him. It was not impossible for the resurrection to have happened. He doesn't say, oh, listen, I know, I know this is hard to believe, guys, but, but God raised him up. I, I know, it just, hey. no, he says, God raised him up because it was actually impossible for the grave to hold him. He switches it around. And Peter is doing this into, uh, in front of a, a giant crowd of adults. These aren't kids. These aren't children, right? Th- these are adults. Crowds of men. And he says, God raised Jesus up from the dead. And what was impossible was that the grave could even hold him. And so what Peter goes on to give us here is four uh, reasons for the certainty of the resurrection. He's going to back up that claim with four reasons. And I'm going to read through the passage right now. Um, We're going to look on verses 25 um, all the way to uh, 41. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word today. And we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to, to come and listen to your words, the words of the Almighty God. We thank you that this account has been preserved in Scripture for us, Lord, and and that the apostles were able to, Lord, go forward and and defend and proclaim the truth of the resurrection. And God, I just pray, maybe, Lord, for, for I don't know who's listening today, but if there's people who have questioned the truth of this, or maybe they're seekers, or maybe even people who've been Christians a long time just need to be reassured of the truth of your word, that you would do that through your Holy Spirit. Your word is so true. It's so perfect. It's clearly seen to us that these disciples, Lord, truly, truly experienced and believed uh, something miraculous here. And they went boldly forth and proclaimed that. So Lord, help us to do that. Just reveal your truth to us today. We want to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I said there's four, uh, four certainties of the resurrection that he's going to point out if you're a note taker. Here's number one. The prophecy of David and the presence of his tomb. The first point that he's making is there's a prophecy of David and there's a, the presence of his tomb. It's still available there. And you see that right off the beginning here because um, Peter starts with going to Scripture. He doesn't start with his just own testimony yet. He just says these things happened. But he starts where? With Scripture. And he's quoting a Psalm of David here. This is Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. So if you were open to open another Bible next to uh, this passage, you'd see that these uh, verses line up perfectly. And uh, David is speaking of two lives here. He's speaking of the life here on earth, and he's speaking of the life beyond the grave and the connection between the two. And it speaks of the devoted life of a believer and the perfecting uh, that here on earth and then the perfecting of the life uh, hereafter. And the devoted life of a believer is meant to be lived in, in a way that we're aware of God's presence here on earth. And I want you to see that to begin with just in verse 25. Look what he says. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. I saw the Lord always before my face. Now, was the Lord physically before the face of David? Right? Was he? Well, no man could see uh, God, right? And live face to face. That's impossible. But David set God before him. Does that make sense? God is, is omnipresent. He is all places at all times. Yet, isn't it true that we can live our lives predominantly out of his presence? Is it because God has removed his presence from us? Or maybe is it that we have failed to, to put him before our face as David did? Listen to Alexander McLaren as he speaks about this. He says, God is ever by our sides, but we may be very far away from him, though he be not far off from every one of us. And if we are to have him blazing, clear, and unobscured above and beyond all the, the mists and hubbub of the earth, we shall need continual effort to keep him in our sight. And I think that's exactly what David was doing. He was just exerting effort to keep God ever before his face. And here on earth, we must be aware of God's presence with us. We, we absolutely need to know God has not forsaken us, right? We need to know God is with us. And when you do that, when you're able to live in a way that you're very much aware of God's uh, presence, you get to enjoy this life. Look at David enjoyed because he set the Lord always before him. Look at, look at verse 25 again. He says, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Verse 26, therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. He's not shaken by the things of the world. He's not shaken by the events. He's not shaken by uh, circumstances. His heart is able to rejoice throughout all of it. And his tongue is even glad, right? He even speaks kindly about things. He's not muttering and complaining about them. And then he says, his flesh will rest in hope. What does that mean? What, what hope is his flesh going to rest in? Well, that's what he tells us in verse 27. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. That the life hereafter will be, uh, what, what we can see here is that the, that life that is after this life, it's marked by our presence with God. It's not that he is present with us. We go into his presence. Um, we have to make ourselves aware of God's presence on this earth, right? We've got to constantly put him before our face. But one day, we're going to be in his presence and we will never be removed from it. And that's what he is talking about here. Because David kept the Lord continually before his face here on this earth in this life, he was assured that the Lord would preserve his life even in the face of death. Look what he says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades. Hades is the Greek word, Sheol is the uh, Hebrew word. This is the grave. You won't leave my soul there. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay. And it's interesting that he uses the word Holy One here, isn't it? What is meant here? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament Psalm, which, which Peter's quoting here, so Psalm 16, 8, um, the Hebrew word used there is chasid, chasid, and it means godly or, or, or a saint or, or pious. Right? We, we are uh, considered saints because we've been made 
righteous by the blood of, of Jesus. So David, in one sense, is prophesying this about himself, right? You won't let your Holy One see corruption. So in one sense, he's speaking about himself. But, but here's where Peter gets to the point of this whole thing. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, <laughs> and his tomb is with us to this day. I love that. I love when he just says that. You know, let me just talk freely about this. We all know, we all know where David is today. Dead. Buried. In fact, his grave is just down the road. Let me take you to it. That's what he's saying, right? We know that he has died and he's in a tomb. And so what he's saying is how could David have prophesied about himself that he wouldn't see corruption, that he wouldn't decay if he is sitting in a grave decaying? That's what he's, that's what he, that's the point he's making here. And Paul, this is interesting. Paul uses this, this Psalm as well as a reference when he is preaching the gospel in in Antioch in Pisidia on Acts chapter 13. In fact, let me take you there just to make a short right-hand turn a few chapters to your right in Acts chapter 13, verse 30. I'll just take you to it. Paul's doing the same thing. He's preaching about the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ, okay? And he goes to several Psalms, but this Psalm is one of them as well. But look at Acts 13, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. See that? He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you and that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He has thus spoken, I will give you the sure mercies of God. Or David, I'm sorry. And that's verse 35. He says, therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. So Paul, he uses the same uh, argument, but he's using scripture to show show that that there's something that transcended the experience of David because David says he won't see corruption, but he did see corruption. And so what what is he doing? Is is David wrong? Did he prophesy incorrectly or is he prophesying about someone else? Well, go on with um, his account here in, in Acts in verse 37. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Oh, who, who is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about Jesus, right? Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Paul is obviously talking about Jesus there, right? In relation to that. Well, Peter's doing the same thing. Going back to uh, Acts chapter 2 to see his explanation in verse 30. So he's just said, David is dead. He's, he's in a tomb. Verse 30, therefore, being a prophet, he acknowledges that, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see what he's done there? David is speaking about one thing in one sense, but another thing in another sense. What oath is he speaking to? Let's begin there. That God has sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he'd raise up the Christ. Well, from his own body, from his line, the Messiah would come. That's what he's saying, right? And David knew that. It comes from Psalm 132, uh, verse 11. I believe I have the verse for you on the screen. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Now I'm going to keep that verse on the screen for a minute because I want you to see the two parts there. First, you have the the, the idea that yes, uh, that there's going to be descendants from the fruit of your own body, your sons, right? And your sons will be the ones that will sit upon the throne forevermore. But then who sits on the throne forevermore? Right? It's the Lord. 
He has desired it for his dwelling place. It's my resting place forever. He says, here I will dwell. So you have the one sense, yes, from David's line will come the Messiah, but ultimately who's going to be the one that, one that can reign forevermore? Uh, that is the Lord. That is God. It's through the royal line of David that the Messiah came. Jesus is ultimately the one promised to sit on David's throne forevermore. So this passage is speaking about the resurrection of Christ. That's his, his, his point here. It's a typological passage. It transcends the experience of David and it speaks prophetically of Christ and it becomes historically true, right? This happens all throughout scripture. You guys, this is not the only place uh, where the writers were unaware as they wrote of the greater meaning of their words, right? They wrote about things, but there was a greater meaning behind that. How? How could they write that way? Well, the simple answer is through the Holy Spirit because 2 Peter 1.21 tells us that. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So prophecy doesn't come by, by man. Ultimately, it's by the Holy Spirit. Yes, men wrote the word of God down, right? But it was the Holy Spirit who moved their hand, who moved their pen. So on the one sense, uh, the men had a particular thing. They, were, they, they knew that they were writing. But in another sense, the Holy Spirit was accomplishing much more beyond that. And so what's in view here with David's um, prophecy in Psalm uh, 16? Well, the grave, uh, decay, that the, the ultimate end, that's what's in view here with David. Uh, and for David, the passage was realized for him ultimately because he was delivered from death and the fellowship with God was never broken. That's more of what he's focused on. But for Jesus, it came through the resurrection from death. Listen to this commentary that kind of tells, tells us what's David's thinking behind this. Death posed no threat to David because he enjoyed great blessing and fellowship with the Lord. God would not permit death and the grave to interrupt that marvelous fellowship. So in a fuller sense, this is true of believers today, right? We who having the full revelation about the doctrine of resurrection can say that even when they die, God will not let death destroy the full fellowship they enjoy with the Lord. This expression of faith is possible because Christ conquered death and rose to become the first fruits of all who sleep. So Peter's point here is to go to the scriptures, to use the words of the great king of Israel. He says the patriarch David, who they all revered, and, and show that a David could not have been writing about himself, but he was writing about another, and that other was Jesus Christ. He goes on to that in verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up. So his flesh did not see corruption. His, his soul was not left in Hades. That is true of Jesus. And that's what his, his point that he's making here. So the first point is that, well, David made a, a prophecy and his tomb is here, right? The prophecy and the presence of the tomb prove something here that they don't quite line up. There had to be something he was speaking about that was beyond it. And Peter says that was Jesus. The second uh, certainty of the resurrection is the pack of witnesses. The pack of witnesses. And it's just the second half of verse 32. Uh, this God, Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Of which we are all witnesses. This Peter is saying we are all witnesses. Who, who is the we here? Well, just turn back to Acts chapter 1 verse 15. Should be on the same page maybe for some of you, but Acts chapter 1 verse 15 says this, and in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The number of the names was about 120. You see that? So there are 120 of the, the brethren, that's what disciples there means, the 120 of the brethren that are gathered there. And what they're doing is they're preparing to, uh, to choose a replacement for Judas. Because if you remember, Judas had gone out and hanged himself. So we no longer have 12 disciples. We have uh, 11. So they're preparing to, to choose a replacement for him. And in verse 21, you kind of have sort of requirements. What, what do you have to be? Or what do you have to have believed? Or what, do you, what, what should you have experienced or seen if you are to be chosen as, as a disciple? Look what it says in verse 21. Therefore, of these men, so of the 120 that are in there, who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, 
to that day when he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, what are they saying here? Okay, of 120 of us that were walking around when Jesus was here, beginning from the, the baptism of John, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus, all the way to when he ascended, okay? Some of you are just going to have to believe that there was a resurrection. Is that what he's saying? No. The, be, become a witness with us is mean become a testifier of that. You're going to now have to go out with us and, and, and proclaim that. We're, we're choosing a, a replacement, right? We're going to have a, a 12th person join us in the public proclamation of this truth. And the requirements is that you've been with Jesus, you walk with Jesus, you've seen that. Does that make sense? You are a witness of that. Not just that you um, became a witness because someone told you about it. So you have a whole group of people that are uh, joining, uh, joining in in this. And, and when you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you see that there was even more people. 1 Corinthians 15, turn ahead to that real quick. Paul gives us a very, a very nice detailed list of actually who, um, who Jesus appeared to here in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, beginning at verse, uh, verse 3. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, notice he's saying the Scriptures prophesied that. And that, verse 5, he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. So stopping that there, okay, he was seen by Cephas. Well, Paul tells us that the first person he appeared to was Peter. That's who Cephas is, Peter. Now, we know, in actuality, from the gospel accounts, that that's not the first person he appeared to. Mary Magdalene is the first person he appeared to. You can read that in Mark 16 and John 20. Then, after that, he didn't appear to Peter. He appeared to the other women. The other women that were at the tomb, Mary, and Mother James, Salome, and, and Joanna. We went through all of that when we went through the gospel of John. But the first man he appeared to... And the men were considered the, the credible witnesses in those days. The first man that he appeared to was Peter. And the two men on the road to Emmaus were next. And even those two men in Luke 24 um, verify the fact that, yeah, Jesus has already appeared to, to Cephas, to Peter. So Peter is the first man that he has uh, appeared to. And then it says, by the twelve. And then verse 6, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, at one time, 500 of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. He's saying most of them are still alive. The greater part of them are still alive. Some, some have died, but, but you can go ask them. 500 people. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul says he was the last one to have seen him raised from the dead. Now, here's, this is very important, so I want you to make sure you get this down. There are four facts that can be established from, from the scriptures regarding the witnesses, regarding the witnesses. And these are known as the, the minimal facts approach. It, they meet that criteria. And what that means is using minimal facts, okay, that um, we're talking about facts that cannot be disputed. They are undisputable facts. That's minimal facts approach. So these facts that I'm going to give you, are not disputed even among the skeptics, okay? Scholars who study the reality of Scripture and the truth of Scripture all believe in these four facts. This is important for you to know because if you're going to share these things, you just need these four facts. These are undisputed. So if someone says, well, I don't believe that, say, well, you're actually going against the top scholars of the world who also don't believe in the Bible, but they believe these four facts, okay? Does that make sense? These are four established facts. They meet the minimal facts approach. And you've you got to remember these things. The first is, is that the witnesses, okay, these are all related to the witnesses, claimed they had seen Jesus after he had risen from the dead. You hear what I'm saying? They claimed they had seen Jesus after they had risen from the dead. So the fact that they claimed that is indisputable in scripture, right? And even beyond extra biblical sources. You go to extra biblical sources that will say, yeah, they all, they all believe that they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. So they, they claimed that they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. And the second is that they really believed what they were claiming. 
So those are the two first facts. Not only did they claim it, but they really, really believed it. Those two things go together. They're undisputed among all the scholars. I'm going to give you four things. There's a fifth thing when I get there that isn't accepted by all of the skeptics. But these four, all of them. So they claim they had seen Jesus after he rose from the dead, and they believe what they were uh, claiming. And yes, while it's difficult to explain how they were so suddenly changed from frightened, cowering Um, men who denied and abandoned Jesus after his arrest and crucifixion um, and and then turned into bold proclaimers of the risen Lord, even to the point of imprisonment and torture and and death. Um, It's true, it's true that people do embrace false beliefs, don't they? they? They can be incorrect concerning the things that they think they have experienced. And my point in saying that is that those two facts alone that I gave you don't confirm that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They're just two facts that are true of the witnesses. The fact that they claim they had seen the risen Lord and the fact that they believed they had seen the risen Lord are indisputable. But do they confirm that Jesus actually rose? They don't. But when you add them to the other two I'm about to give you, very, very difficult evidence to refute and and scholars would agree. And here they are. These other two facts concern just two of the witnesses that Paul listed there. They are Paul himself, who was a persecutor of the church, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. Those are two other facts. And here's why. Well, two reasons why, really. They're both converted. They're both converted based upon the belief of, uh, uh, based upon the belief from the primary source. Primary source. Who is the primary source? The risen Jesus, right? That's the primary source. They were not converted by the secondary source, meaning they did not go, Paul did not go and talk to Peter and sit down while he was persecuting Peter and the church and be convinced through an argument that he, he, that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul himself says the risen Jesus appeared to him. Paul says as an enemy of the church that he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because Jesus himself, the primary source, had met him. Now, you and I today believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but we believe upon the secondary source, right? Because we haven't met the risen Jesus, Lord. We will one day, but we believe through secondary sources. But both Paul and James were converted uh, by the primary source. James, the half-brother of Jesus, did not believe in his own uh, brother's deity. He didn't believe he was the Messiah. They thought that he should be you know, put away, locked up, you know, don't give him any sharp things because, you know, they thought he was was a little crazy. But James was so converted that he actually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. We have an epistle by James. So to have two testimonies uh, claim belief in the resurrection and both from the primary source, that is a testimony that's difficult to refute. In addition, they were both enemies of the truth. And when you put those four things together, there are four facts of those witnesses that can't be denied. And people have a very, very difficult time then to explain, well, how could Paul, a persecutor of the church, and James, who didn't even believe in his own brother, how could they have been converted? It wasn't through secondary sources. They both say they met the risen Jesus. The fifth point I said I would throw in, the fifth point is the empty tomb. The empty tomb still is empty. The empty tomb was never filled. The empty tomb is still difficult, but not... But there are skeptics that don't quite believe in the empty tomb. But those four facts of scripture about the witnesses, undisputed. There are no skeptics that will say, well, that didn't happen. They will will back those up. With those four minimal facts approach, there's not a person on the face of the planet that can really argue against the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's just too much evidence against it. Just with those four. So, so what, what, Peter has done, uh, sorry, what uh, Peter has done here is he's first started in Scripture. He's gone to the patriarch David and said, David himself, right? King David, a man after God's own heart. He prophesied uh, about it. And then on the top of that, we all, we all witnessed it. And there's a ton of witnesses. There's a bunch of witnesses, right? But the third thing, and it kind of backs up the witness thing, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. So not only do you have the... Uh, that the presence of the tomb, the prophecy of David, um, not only do you have the pack of witnesses here, but you have the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's point three, the, cer- the third certainty. Look at verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. So Peter is mentioning the promise of the Holy Spirit. What is he referring to? It's the Holy Spirit, right? That he promised in John 14, 26. In fact, you want to turn there really briefly. John chapter 14. This all happens on Thursday in the upper room. Um, after uh, Judas has left, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to them. Not, not um, long ago, our church studied this. So this is probably fresh in your minds. Uh, if there's anyone else watching, I encourage you to go back and look at these uh, verses. But in John chapter 14, this is all in the upper room. After Jesus, Jesus, uh, Judas has left, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So he promises the Holy Spirit there. He's going to come from the Father, but he's going to um, come in, in my, my name. And the Holy Spirit wouldn't come to them unless first Jesus left unless Jesus had gone away. And that's later in John chapter 16, still in the upper room, in verse 7. Look at that, John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you that the, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So Jesus says, okay, catch the connection here. I, I, you, you need the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go away. But listen, it's better that I go away because that promised Holy Spirit will come to you and you're going to have a, a, a power beyond uh, that you've had since I was here. Um, Jesus is, is, is the first time he's talking about going away is in this whole section. They're like going away, going where? What are you talking about, right? But he promises the Holy Spirit. He promises that if he goes away, that, um, that if the Holy Spirit comes, what it does is say, like Jesus actually went to where he said he was going. If that Holy Spirit comes, does that make sense? It's, it's proof of what Jesus said. If Jesus had, had left, he just disappeared and nothing ever happened at all. They would want to question this, right? But they were just in Pentecost, right? They're in Jerusalem and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the only thing he could think of is, oh, this is the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. And in fact, if you look at verse eight of John 16, it says, and when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you go back to our passage in Acts uh, 2, remember they were speaking in tongues and it says they were declaring the wonderful works of God in verse 11, right? They were declaring the wonderful works of God. That's all through the Holy Spirit. So here's what Peter is saying, that what the people are seeing, right? All the, are they drunk? What's going on? They're marveling. They're perplexing. What they're seeing and hearing is the work of the Holy Spirit, which was promised to come to them after Jesus has gone to the Father. But how could Jesus go to the Father if he's still in the grave? If he's still in the grave, how could they be speaking in tongues? You see how all these are connected? But he's not in the grave. We're speaking in tongues because he has ascended. He's given us the Spirit. This is his argument. And it kind of goes into the final point. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. The fourth point is the position of Christ in heaven. It speaks of the truth that if Jesus left this, if we're speaking in tongues, right? If we're speaking these languages and we have the Holy Spirit, that means Jesus has ascended. He has left this earth. He is in heaven at the right hand of God. Look at verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter takes us to another Psalm of David. This is Psalm 110. And it's another Psalm in which uh, it's it seemingly about David, but yet cannot be fully about David. And the reason is David did not ascend to heaven. That's what he's saying here, right? Again, let's go back to the tomb. There's a grave there. I'm sure if we dig it up, we'll find some bones, right? He's saying we didn't ascend into heaven. He's not sitting at the right hand of the father, but Jesus did. He did. And in fact, if you go back to Acts chapter one, verse nine, the actual ascension is documented in Acts 1, 9. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven." Notice how many times heaven was used there, right? You see him go to heaven. He's, he's gone to heaven. He's going to return that way from heaven. I think the writer wants us to know that Jesus has gone to heaven, right? So 
Jesus ascended, they witnessed it, and Peter used this Psalm of David as proof. Jesus himself, interestingly, um, questioned the scribes about the meaning of this Psalm. This is Psalm 110. He questioned the scribes about this. You know, what do you guys think this means? And it's in actually in Matthew chapter 22, if you want to look at it. Matthew chapter 22 um, is when he questions them about it. Verse uh, 41 is where he does this. Yes. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Um, whose, whose son is he? And they said to him, Well, the son of, son of David. And he said to them, hmm, well, that, how, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, then how is he his son? You see what he's doing there? And here, here's what he's saying. What, what, what Jesus is doing is he's not, he's not questioning the title um, uh, son, of, son of David here for the Messiah. That, that was a, a well-known title. That's what he said. Oh, whose son is he? Oh, he's the son of David. They, they knew that was a title that was accepted. He's a, he's a son, of, son of David. It's an appropriate uh, title. Um, it was a common one. But what he's doing is he's hinting at the fact that son of David does not really even begin to scratch the surface of who the Messiah really is. He's also the son of God. He says, oh, that's true. Okay, son of David. Yeah, but if he is a son of David, then how can David, right, call him Lord if he's his son? Like he wouldn't say, oh, Lord, I have never called any of my kids Lord. Right? And if you do, stop. All right? You're their Lord, if anything, right? But he would not call his son Lord. He would address him that way. It would never uh, happen. And so what's happening here is he's saying, so is he meaning something more here? How can he call him Lord? And in verse 46, it tells us, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. Um, there, there's something greater happening here. And what is, what is, what is really going on there? Could it not be saying, could this not be then a conversation between God the Father and God the Son? The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, sit at my right hand till, till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, now that fits more accurately, but David would never really say that. And David, once again, is, is sort of unwittingly writing this about the Messiah. And you know, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the passage doesn't refer to an angel either. In Hebrews 1.13, it's used there. But to which of the angels has ever said, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Right? Nope, that's not an angel. Uh, that's, not, that's not David. Uh, that's someone greater that would sit at the right hand of the Father. And Paul tells us that that position by the right hand of the Father is where Christ is right now. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I have that verse for you. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and here it is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul says that, that Christ was raised from the dead and where he is now, at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus must reign there. That's where he remains until he has made all his enemies his footstool, that, that is what that passage is talking about. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 26, it says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So, so Christ must reign um, by the right hand of the Father until the last enemy is destroyed. When will that be? Well, Satan's great weapon was death, right? And certainly Christ destroyed that, uh, that power at the cross, the power of death, uh, the fear of it, right? The hold that it has over human beings was destroyed at the cross. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So, so the power of death in the hands of Satan, that was destroyed, but, but Satan isn't destroyed, and so that power won't be uh, permanently divested um, until Psalm 8.6 is fulfilled. And Psalm 8.6 says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All things. That includes death. So when will that be? If you're just curious, when will that be? Well, that won't be till the end of the, the thousand year reign, the millennial reign of Jesus here on earth. 
And Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 tells us when death is destroyed. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So Jesus will remain in that place of power until he has put all things under his feet. But what's Peter's point here, going back to our a passage, that David didn't ascend to the right hand of the Father? So he's because he's not God's son, but 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 Jesus is. And I just kind of think about each of these points, if you kind of think about them in, in reverse and how they connect together. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Well, how do we know? Well, because the promise of the Holy Spirit is given, um, and, and that's what you've seen, right? You've seen us uh, speaking in these other languages. Well, why did it come to you? Well, because we're witnesses of the resurrection, right? We're the pack of witnesses. And Well, how can that be true? Because David prophesied about it, right? You just kind of go right back in reverse order. So Peter's concluding thought here in verse 36 is, is a challenge to each and every uh, the seeker out there, every skeptic, um, this is the challenge he issues today. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And I will extend this out to, to all beyond the house of, of Israel. God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. Lord Kyrios and Christ Messiah. And I think you need to understand what we're saying when we say Lord here. The word Lord Kyrios is, is used of God, the Father, in verse 21 if, of this same passage in Acts chapter 2. If you look at verse 21, it says that it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. That's a passage from Joel, uh, Old Testament prophet, um, pre-Jesus incarnate, yet Lord is used. It's used again in verse 34, like we just read, the Lord said to my Lord, and it's used again in verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. All uses of Lord there are kyrios there. So, what is happening here? I think this is certainly claiming the deity of Christ here. That's the point. It's a strong affirmation. Yes, he is Messiah, but he's also God. And so look at the response of the crowd. These final verses show us in verse 37 on. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3000 souls were added to them. 3000 souls. These were adult men who went down here to this uh, feast of first fruits, the Pentecost. And as you can see, far from being a story only for those Sunday school kids, Peter gives a concrete case for the resurrection to adults. And what happened? They were cut to the heart. And what resulted? Salvation. The thrust of his whole message was the resurrection, was the empty grave. Peter said it was not possible that he should be held by it. The faith of a Christian is not a faith that we have to constantly question as the liberal theologians would have us believe. And the reason? The facts have not changed. The Christian faith is not a faith that we have to constantly reinterpret. The reason? The meaning hasn't changed. The proclamation of the gospel and of the truth of Jesus' resurrection resulted in 3,000 souls being saved that day in Jerusalem. The same message has saved many thousands more throughout the centuries. The resurrection was not an impossibility. What was impossible was that the grave would hold him. The tomb, the tomb is empty and he is risen. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today. We thank you for the bold declaration of Peter that indeed, you, Lord, you rose, you rose from the dead. And Lord, it's hard to believe that a faith that was established on the resurrection of Christ would seek to establish themselves on something else. Oh Lord, just forgive those churches and those leaders who, who think 
that we must just move along to higher thinking and higher ways along with the times to be progressive. Lord, the gospel, the, the, the truth of the resurrection is not for children alone. It is for all. It is the truth of what took place that day 2,000 years ago. And Lord, we, we come to you, Lord, boldly proclaiming that today. We come before you saying, yes, Lord, you have risen, and we proclaim it loudly. And Lord, help us to not shy away from the opportunities to share the gospel. May we, may we even use the minimal facts approach, those four truths that cannot be denied of Scripture. How do you explain those things away? Difficult to do so. But Lord, we just have the truth of your word, the gospels. And we know that your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and that your word will not return void. And so, Lord, just help us not to rely on other tools, fancy speech, but to rely on the power of your word and the truth contained therein. God, thank you for this day that you have made. We rejoice in this day, this Resurrection Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.